Great. Thanks very much, Rosemary. Morning again, everyone. We're all well. And uh, I thought I'd begin by just giving you a, a little bit of an update as to uh, the spiritual development of my daughter. Would that, would that be good? Yeah, you'd appreciate that. I'm sure you're all praying for her, concerned for her. She's two and a half. And um, two and a half is actually quite a, a fun age as a sort of Christian parent because um, by that point, most uh, toddlers can talk. They, they've started to take on board the idea of uh, there being a God, of, 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 of Jesus, not being literally here physically in front of us, but being real. Um, and they've also, especially older children, it's quite well documented, um, older children tend to like to want to please their parents, and uh, young Clara is no exception. So just a, a few highlights from this week in this regard. Um, first of all, uh, we always do prayers with her uh, as we put her to bed and read a story and sing songs, etc. And uh, Clara uh, was with Kate um, earlier in the week, and uh, she said to Kate, Mummy, Jesus is in my heart. He's heavy. <laughs> so, that, that was Tuesday. This was relayed to me. Um, but I wasn't going to miss out because a few days later, I think it was Thursday, actually, I was doing a good uh, you know, bedtime and she said, Daddy, Jesus is in my heart. And I said, oh, that's lovely, Clara. And she lifted up her shirt and said, look, I can see his legs. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, on Friday, um, she was uh, a bit grouchy. So um, normally fresh air helps in that regard. It was getting to that sort of nightmare, uh, sort of bedtime, just before bedtime hour. So I said, Clara, would you like to go for a walk? And she said, yes, Daddy. And uh, we took Harry as well in the sling. And um, the only thing was, it wasn't long before we needed to get back for bath time and all that. And uh, so it was just intended to be a short walk. But uh, I said, OK, Clara, where do you want to go? And she said, up there. So we went up Sandy Lane, up the hill. But the problem with Clara is she, she literally just points out every single thing you can see. And it's always the same thing. You know, what's that orange thing, Daddy? Oh, it's just a bit of packaging that someone squashed. What's that? It's a water bottle. What's that? It's a leaf. What's that? That's a fence. You know? And it just goes on like this. We're not really getting anywhere. And I said, Clara, look, we're going to have to turn around and go home now. No, Daddy, I want to go that way. So we carry on walking and uh, try again a few minutes later. Clara, I really think we need to turn home now just so you can uh, go home and watch a little bit of television, television before bath. No, Daddy, I want to go up there. Um, so she pointed to the top of the hill, and I said, okay, right, we'll walk to the top of the hill, and then we'll turn round. So we get to the top of the hill, so it's time to turn round now, Clara. And she said, no, I want to go that way. And, uh, and I said, why, Clara? I want to go to church, she said. Oh, which I thought was rather encouraging, wasn't it? You know, so, uh, I thought, well, okay, Clara. And she said, I want to go to your office. And I thought, oh, okay, that's nice. You haven't seen it since my first week. You might even have forgotten. So uh, she's obviously curious about where I am during the day. So I said, okay, Clara, we're going to have to be very quick, though. We'll just quickly go to the church and see my office. So we get to the church. Um, I carry her a little bit of the way to speed things up. Um, I open the doors to the church. And then I said, Clara, we need to go up the stairs now to my office. No, I don't want to go up the stairs. I want to go there. And she pointed to the garden room. I thought, this is very curious. What's, what's going on here? So we go through into the garden room, turn the lights on, and then she said, I want to go in the kitchen. I said, bizarre. <laughs> what is this? Uh, so we open the kitchen door, and there she points to the biscuit tin. And, <laughs> and the true motives of her heart were thus exposed. 
Now I have to say this is a wonderful foreshadowing of this passage that we're looking at today because the elder son superficially appears to be doing and saying all the things that his father wants. But as the the parable gets on and gets clear towards the end, we can see that his motives are not necessarily the right ones. And that's really what I want to look at today. It's a wonderful parable, this one, isn't it? And often this is uh, the image, if we can just show the first slide now, that we associate in our minds with this parable. The scene of the father running, welcoming his lost son and just communicating in that absolute uh, welcome and love just how much he cares for him and how he is accepted again. And this, of course, is a wonderful picture of God's welcome to each of us when we turn to him. And that is, in many ways, the most important thing that the whole world needs to understand. God welcomes us when we turn to him, whatever we might have done, however far we may have strayed. And yet it's not the climax of this parable, is it? And Jesus doesn't sort of finish here and then think, oh, I'm a bit bored, I'll just tell a little bit more of a story just to fill the time. Actually, what he does is then proceeds to tell another story or a second act, if you like, in a two-act play. And it's this second act that is actually the finale, the climax of the parable. This is the scene here. The father trying to persuade his elder son to come into the party, and yet that son is refusing. Now, this is the question I want to put to you right now. Why did Jesus do that? Well, the answer has to be because he wanted to teach us something hugely important through that finale of the story. Something that we, particularly those who he has in mind in telling that part of the story, can take to heart and learn from. And who is this bit of the story addressed to? What what do you think? Anyone want to shout out? All of us? Yep, be a bit more specific. Pharisees in the immediate context, to us today in particular, who is it addressed to? The church, absolutely. So what we've got here in this parable is we've got a first bit, if you like, speaking to those outside the church. But then we've got the finale speaking to those of us inside the church. And so for us today, I want us to focus on this elder son which is less taught about, but I think is so, so powerful. As we seek to return to our first love, which is what we're thinking about all term, and I believe that we have in the story of the elder brother all the seeds that we need to know how to do that and how to receive that joy and intimacy and peace and sense of being in the right place with him that he longs us to have and all the forgiveness too that he offers to all his sons and all daughters and every one of us here today. So I want to pray now that we, um, in what's going to be quite a challenging sermon, I should warn you, are are ready to receive that and to recognize in us something of the elder brother as well as maybe the younger brother and that we would be willing to respond as he calls us to. So let's pray now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing parable that some have called the greatest story ever told. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through the elder brother and what he gets wrong and what the father models to him. Lord, would you set us free from all religion that hinders us? 
And would you bring us home to that place of intimacy, peace, and joy in you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so on with the uh, sermon. And uh, it's normally quite helpful if I just give you an idea of where we're heading. So here we go. This is where we're heading. We're going to start by sort of redefining sin, just thinking a little bit more broadly about what sin is, so that it encompasses the elder brother as well as the younger brother. And then you'll be pleased to know we're going to look at the remedy, what to turn away from and who to turn to, what's going to get us to that place that actually we deep down all long to be. So first of all then, redefining sin. Because the concept of sin in the case of the younger brother is fairly familiar, isn't it? We all recognise what was wrong with the younger son's behaviour and why he was lost. What he had effectively done was said to his father, I don't need you. I'd rather you were dead. I want to have what will be mine when you have died. I want to get out of here. You can imagine how his father would have felt, can't you? It was something that was truly scandalous in that culture, as indeed it still would be today. It was unheard of and was an absolute humiliation to his father. Short of killing his dad, this was pretty well the most appalling thing that he could have done. An absolute humiliation. And add to that how he actually lived when he went off to the bright lights of some Gentile city in the east. And it represents a total rejection of his family, a total rejection of his morality, and you have to say a total rejection of plain common sense as well. As he frittered away his inheritance on the Middle Eastern first century equivalent of sex, drugs and rock and roll. But when it comes to the elder brother, let's be honest, it's just a little bit less clear, isn't it? For from verse 25 to the end of the passage, our attention switches to the scene in the other room. And the embittered elder son, angry that despite all that his brother had put the family through, he was being welcomed home. There was a party for him, and yet he himself had never had a party. Where is the justice, he cries. And he refuses to join the party, itself bringing further pain and humiliation onto the father. And the story finishes off with a cliffhanger, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Where his father there, pleading with him, please come in. And yet the elder son is refusing to do so. And we're left wondering what eventually would happen. So Jesus here is painting two pictures of sin, one of which we all recognise and the second of which we don't. The first is the younger brother, very consciously having turned away from the father and gone his own way, living a self-indulgent, dissolute life totally out of control and everyone listening to this parable knew that anyone who did that would be separated from their God. That was clear. They all knew what this meant. And yet in the final part of the story, the focus is on the elder brother, who superficially appears to be completely obedient to his father, and therefore by analogy to the commands of God. He is completely under control, it seems, and is indeed self-disciplined in doing that. Yet he is the one who misses out on the father's feast, while the bad son, who did eventually turn back to his father, does not. 
Imagine how the Pharisees listening to that would have felt. It's the Pharisees, it's the sinners, it's the tax collectors, the prostitutes are in the party. And you, the Pharisees, are rejecting them. And yet the danger is, so too can religious people everywhere. So, Jesus continues, and in fact it gets even more shocking in terms of what he then says. Because why doesn't the elder brother come in? He himself gives the reason. Because I've never disobeyed you. That effectively is what he's saying in verse 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. So the point Jesus is making here is not that the elder brother's disobedience is what creates the barrier between him and his father, his father representing God here. No, it's rather his obedience that represents the barrier. Why? Because of the attitude that under pins it, its underlying motivation. And it's when we look at this that we realise that the two brothers' hearts are actually far more similar than we might have first thought. For what did the younger son most want in life? He resented having to enjoy his family's assets under his father's supervision. He wanted instead to make his own decisions and have unfettered control of his portion of the wealth. And we all know, don't we, how heartlessly he achieved that. And what did the elder son most want? Well, if we think about it, he realized, we realize he wanted the same thing as his younger brother. He was just as resentful of his father as was the younger son. He too wanted his father's property and wealth rather than his father himself. However, whilst the younger brother went far away, the elder brother stayed close and never disobeyed. That was his way to get control. His unspoken demand is this. I have never disobeyed you. Now you have to do things in my life the way that I want them to be done. I have rights. We can imagine him crying. You owe me. You owe me, Father. You have to do what I want you to do. For the hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways to get out from under it. They each wanted to get to a position where they could tell their father what to do. But one did so by rebelling, by being very bad, and the other did it by being very good. It was the wealth not the love of the Father that they believed would make them happy and fulfilled. And so at the end of the story, the elder brother there in that scene on the picture has the opportunity to truly delight his father by going into the feast. But his resentful refusal shows the father's happiness or indeed his brother's well-being has never been his goal. And yet this story isn't just about one family, is it? It's an illustration of what we are naturally all like. The world is full of younger brothers rebelling against God. And we know too well in secular Europe, don't we, that that's the case. But the world is also full of elder brothers obeying God to get things from him, rather than to get God himself. And... Rather than seeking to resemble him, to love him, 
to know him and to delight him. Here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us as human beings. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus instead, though, says that everyone, in fact, the problem is that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We just go about it in different ways. Some like the younger son, some like the older son. And in fact, it's often the way of the elder son that's more dangerous because such people are more likely to be blind to their true condition. And let's be honest, are more likely to be found in the church. And so the question I have to ask at this point is this. What about us? Are we driven more by what we can get from God than by God himself? Is it more about the prayers we want answered than simply our relationship with him? Or to ask some other awkward questions, is our service of him more motivated by the identity that it gives us than a simple love of serving our creator? Or is our worship more motivated by the style of music that we like than a heartfelt desire to honour him? These are challenging questions, especially because deep down we know we can easily slip into this way of thinking, even as fully signed up Christians as many of us are. And I want to share now some symptoms taken from the elder son in this parable that could indicate that it might be happening to us, even if just in moderate form. So then, the first feature to note is that the elder brother becomes angry. That's in verse 28. All of his words are dripping with resentment. And the first sign that there might be an elder brother spirit in us is that when our life doesn't go as we want, we're not just sorrowful, but we're deeply angry and bitter. For elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, they should get a good life. And that God owes them a smooth road if they try very hard to live up to his standards. We all recognize that, don't we? It's a very natural way of thinking. But the problem is that that moral observance, if I can call it that, is results-oriented. The good life is lived not for delighting good deeds themselves or for delighting, delighting God. A second sign, then, of those with an elder brother's spirit might be this, being joyless or feeling like we're just working at fear-based compliance. The older son boasts of his obedience to his father, but his underlying motivation and attitude slip out when he says in verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you. Such a powerful word, isn't it? Slaving. What does it tell us? Well, to be sure, obviously being faithful to any commitment involves a certain amount of dutifulness. We all know that, particularly you know, if we serve in the life of the church. Often we don't feel like doing what we do, but we do it anyway because we're committed to it. But the elder brother shows that his obedience to his father is nothing but duty all the way. There's no joy or love, no reward in just seeing his father pleased. Instead, it's a slavish, joyless drudgery, driven purely by fear of not receiving what he wants. 
elder brothers may do good to others, but not out of delight in the deeds themselves or for the love of the people concerned or the love of God. They're not really feeding or clothing the poor. They're feeding or clothing themselves. I've had to reflect on that myself this week. For I have to do things for God regularly, whether I give a talk or a Bible study or sermon or lead a meeting in the staff team. It's very easy in my position to allow God simply to become my line manager, if you like, whom I serve out of obligation, rather than my father who I seek to serve out of love. Or perhaps worse still, I can be motivated to do things not because I want to please him, but because I want affirmation from people in the church. It's a real danger. And that's something that I need to think about all the time. But it affects us all, let's be honest. And the third sign of elder brother lostness is this, a lack of assurance of the father's love. The older son says in effect in verse 29, you never threw me a party. And as a consequence, he isn't sure that God loves and delights in him. What a tragedy. Which is why his father is at pains to make clear his love for the elder son in verse 31. Making crystal clear he loves him and loves him completely. But what about us? Are we assured of God's love for us? Well, one indicator that we might not be is this. That criticism from others doesn't just hurt our feelings. It devastates us. Why do I say that? Because it's indicative that our sense of God's love is abstract and has little real power in our life. And so we need the approval of others to bolster our sense of value and self-worth. Or it could be indicated by a dry prayer life. Now, we all go through periods of dryness, don't get me wrong. And though elder brothers can be diligent in prayer, the feature for them, though, is that there's no wonder or intimacy or delight in their conversations with God. Rather, their prayers are almost wholly taken up with a list of prayer requests, not spontaneous, joyful praise. It's deeply challenging, isn't it? And we end up at the end of the parable, having seen Jesus portray two Equally futile spiritual paths. The way of rebelling against him and the way of seeking to please God to get what we want from him. Yet we've seen that clearly neither leave us happy, secure, with a positive self-identity or at peace with him. Jesus clearly wants to take us to some radically different approach. But what is it? Well, that's what we're going to finish with now. The answer, in old-fashioned language, it's to repent, to put that in today's words, to say sorry, to turn back, not just for the wrong things we've done, but also for the wrong motivations, for the good things we have done. The sin of seeking to be our own saviour and Lord. And to turn instead to the one person who can be our saviour, who can be our Lord, the person who Jesus deliberately leaves out of the parable, himself. What do I mean? Well, imagine for a moment that there had been a different elder brother, but this time one who truly did love 
his father and who truly did love his missing brother as well. What would he have done? Now, Tim Keller, in this wonderful book called The Prodigal God, which I recommend to you, and much of the good stuff in this sermon is taken from there. This is what he said. Father, my younger brother has been a fool, and now his life is in ruins. This is what the true elder brother should have done. But I will go and look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect it will be, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. For let's be clear, it would cost money, a lot of it. Sometimes we don't think enough about the parable and we think that the restoration of the younger brother somehow involved no cost, no atonement at all. But if we think about it a bit more, we realise the only way that the father could restore the younger brother was at the expense of the older brother. There was no other way. It was his future inheritance that was reduced. There was a heavy price to be paid. Now this may, of course, give us a reason to feel sorry for the elder brother, but I have to say that given the context in the New Testament story and what Jesus knew was shortly about to happen to him, do you see the striking parallel For in the story, Jesus makes clear that what the father wanted the eldest son to do was to care as much about his brother as he did so that he wouldn't mind sacrificing some of his inheritance to see him restored. The attitude he wanted the eldest son to share is clear in verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Yet the elder brother in the parable tragically didn't share his father's heart and didn't celebrate and he wasn't glad. However, the God who the father in the parable is designed to be representing, did, of course, have such a son. A son who was willing to go out searching for his lost brother, indeed for the many lost brothers and sisters like us as well. And who was willing to make a sacrifice to bring them home, indeed the most costly sacrifice of all. A son who did share his father's heart and who was willing to do anything for him, That son, of course, was Jesus himself. Jesus, our brother, went and searched for us and Jesus, our brother, paid the ultimate sacrifice on the cross so that we too could become children of God. There was no other way for our Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense of Jesus, our true elder brother. So how then? How then can the inner workings of our heart be changed from that dynamic of fear and anger and dryness and drudgery to that of love, joy and gratitude? Here is how. We need to be moved by the sight of what it cost him to bring us home. We will never stop being younger brothers 
or elder brothers until we acknowledge our need to rest by faith and gaze in wonder at the work of our true elder brother, Jesus. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask us to respond. But I want us first just to consider where we are at, where you are at. Are we a younger brother flirting with the temptations of the world, finding ourselves being dragged into, if you like, a minor rebellion against God, struggling with temptation because the evil one is trying to drag us away? That's the reality for every Christian. The evil one is trying to drag us away. Or has God become such a small part of our lives that it's as if we've already left and gone off to a far country where all he gets is the odd prayer here and there, letting him know we're okay? Why are we more like the older brother in the parable? In that we are actually close to him, but not in an intimate, loving relationship and rather in one that's become dry and business-like, results-oriented, where we are serving and praying and worshipping just because of what we can get out of it, not because we simply want to be with him and to delight him. Have we slipped into elder brother-ness? Or maybe we found ourselves recently sensitive to criticism because we've lost our assurance in a God who unconditionally loves us. Where other people's opinions have started mattering more than his. But where he loves to set us free. To know his absolute love. So that we don't have to worry about what other people think anymore. However we're feeling. What we need to do is turn. Turn back to the one who should be in full control of our lives. The one who died for us on the cross and is the only true source of peace and joy and secure identity and fulfillment. Our true elder brother, Jesus. So I'm going to suggest we have a time of silence now, just for a a minute or two. And as we have this time of silence, I want... You just to think about where you are at. What do you need to do to get back to that place of peace and joy? What does coming back to your first love, Jesus, mean for you right now? So let's take this time of silence now just to invite God to speak to us about that. And just to be honest with him about our response to that. And then I'll lead us in a further time of response.